Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The latest COVID-19 testing numbers out of Notre Dame weren't the most encouraging on Monday. Um, From Tuesday through Friday of last week, 18 more players tested positive for COVID-19, and that left the Irish with 25 players in isolation from positive tests and 14 others in quarantine from contact tracing, which is a little more than one-third of the roster. But Fortunately for Notre Dame, they have a bye week this week and some time to maybe recoup. Uh, The Florida State game on October 10th remains on the schedule, and we'll see how Notre Dame emerges through this bye week to see if that can remain uh, set in stone. Uh, But instead of focusing the majority of our podcast on COVID-19, we wanted to talk some football, so we invited on former Notre Dame quarterback Rick Meyer. Rick, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Rick, I, I want to start uh, first kind of with the mindset of a quarterback entering his third year as the starter at Notre Dame. You were in that spot back in 1992. Was there a comfort that came with that, or was there even more pressure, and how did you navigate that? I've been asked that quite a bit this past uh, few months, which is <laughs> it's good. Um, no, I mean, I think with, um, you know, with added responsibility and, and – experience there is a little bit of pressure but uh you're also comfortable because you've been there done that so i think um there are there's a lot of continuity with the staff i think they've integrated some of the younger guys so for ian it's been pretty comfortable just to kind of function and, and continue the growth of the offense and probably rely on the things he's most comfortable with because he can you know draw from experience and know what those are rick you know, I would imagine there's a lot of emotion when you watch a Notre Dame game still. But if you're looking at it analytically, do you think there's another level to Ian Book's game that we haven't seen at the college level? You know, I'm not evaluating it like that. I, I, I'm just impressed um, with his consistency and, um, you know, knock on wood, he's been real healthy. I mean, that's hard. It's hard to do that. But, um He's got a target on his back, and he keeps performing and, and relying on 
uh, a bunch of, you know, it's always new guys. There's some veteran guys, but then the young guys pop in there and get some experience. And it just seems to be, he just seems comfortable. And um, it's not every play. I mean, everybody's got, you know, moments where it's a little chaotic, but um, I don't know how much more can happen. I think the idea right now is win 10 games and win all these things and see where you're at. But um I mean, looking back at the start at the beginning when he first went in, he he'd have taken this. I think this is a pretty this is a pretty good, pretty good run of games and, and great records to show. Rick, when when you're a quarterback that's been through uh, the ringer and, and gone through a lot of games, and uh, that's probably a good thing that you have all that experience. But it could be a, a negative in that defenses may have a better idea how to sort of exploit your weaknesses. How how do, how do you think that balances out? Do you think there's more pros than cons to that? That's a good question. I think, um, I mean, if you have a really solid team, you, you're in the driver's seat. So um, they still have to stop your guys. And, you know, especially when you have the big offensive line and tight ends like, like we've had the last bunch of years. Um, just because they know what you're doing doesn't mean they can stop it. Um, but really the quarterbacks, you know, it's the third and five to 10 kind of plays. What happens there? Cause that's where you make your money. And, and, um, you know, we seem to be moving the chains and I don't know the stats from last game, but felt like scored a bunch of series in a row. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not always playing, you know, a top five team, I guess, but, um, yeah, they may know what you're doing and what you've done in the past, but they still have to stop it. Rick, you know, you were, you predated uh, message boards and Twitter feeds and all that stuff, but I'm sure you heard a lot from amateur coaches as you were walking through campus and so forth about what you can improve on. I'm wondering how difficult is it to manage that noise and how did you, how were you successful at doing that? I just didn't read anything. Um, I didn't listen to the radio. You, you, you catch you know, wind of things that people are saying or, you know, press conference kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't know. These kids now, I mean, it's it's hard to get away from it. I don't know how they could avoid it. Um, and I don't think it's good when things are going poorly, but I also don't think it's all that healthy when it's going great because you kind of get this false sense of security sometimes. And, um, yeah, it's a different world. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, these guys don't know any different. So it's not like they had to figure out how to not, you know, understand what the whole world's saying about them. But um, hopefully they don't make too much of it. You need to trust the guys that are calling the plays and your teammates, people in the huddle that, that know what's going on. And uh, there's always going to be the armchair quarterback stuff. And, uh, you know, there's just more of it now than there ever used to be. Yeah, I think for guys now you can as, as much as you want to isolate yourself from it you're gonna to have to put your phone down at some point because they can get to you on your phone even uh, all those all those uh, messages that people want to send you and advice they want to send you or criticism they want to send you uh, right. this year Ian's going through something even more crazy with the just sort of being isolated and they're trying to prevent him from getting caught up with a positive COVID-19 test or being caught up in contact tracing and so he's kind of isolated from the team a bit and uh, basically, class and football is about all he gets. All he's doing, he's trying to stay alone as much as possible. How do you think that would affect your psyche as you were going through a, a football season? Yeah, I don't, I don't love that, and I know none of those guys do either. Uh, my son's a senior; he's on campus, or he's a, he's out just off campus, and 
those guys, you know, it's not a normal situation for anybody. Um, but if you're the one that's locked up and, and kept away from everybody, I, I didn't know and I don't know exactly how, how much of that is going on, but it does make sense. I mean, you can't – you don't have a ton of depth, you know, and, and uh, whether the you know people like it or not, some guys are just a little bit more valuable because there, there isn't a supply of them. So, I don't know. It's, it's probably a little quiet and lonely, but um, – at least they're playing. I, I think there was a time where we all probably thought maybe they weren't going to play. So, you know, progress is good. And uh, this this latest set of numbers I saw the other day wasn't real encouraging, but uh, hopefully that's a wave that we get past when we have a bye and don't have any major issues, you know, coming down the stretch. Rick, uh, you know, you mentioned Morrison. Charlie also plays sports. Oliver plays sports, right? Um, yep. How do you feel about your sons playing sports in the COVID era? Um, you know, they've all kind of gotten away with a, a modified version of it for a while now. Um, you know, the lacrosse season stopped, but they played some games. I mean, they got close to half a season. Um we, we got to play a bunch of golf when the boys were all home. I mean, you know, there's certain things that are, that are okay. And they got in the ocean a lot, but um, for Charlie, you know, as a, as a junior in high school, you hate to see him lose seasons. So uh, our fingers are crossed. They're supposed to play football in the winter here. Um, probably practice December, play January through April, uh, March or April. And I'm not overly concerned about their health relative to that because of the age that they're at. I don't think that's exactly the, the fear, you know, age group, but um, I, I feel bad. There's kids that were just in the wrong class and kind of got a raw deal. And this is the, the freshmen in college right now. And some of the seniors in high school right now aren't getting what they deserve, but those aren't my guys. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just hoping they get, you know, the, the most out of it they can. And before, you know, things that someday will be normal, but it might be a while. Yeah, for those that don't know, that are listening, Morrison is a, a lacrosse player at Notre Dame. Um, how is how is he handling everything? What what are his reports back of like how are things going on campus and the the new kind of experience that this is? Well, he just um, mentions how difficult class is all the time. It's like I think they feel like all they do is school. He's he's um, he's econ and accounting, and that's just hard anyway. But um, you know, when they started working out again, that you know, get to be around each other a little bit more. I think uh, that was that was a welcome change. Um, there were weeks there where there's a lot of guys kind of locked in their rooms and going through, you know, some of the positive tests and some of the the tracing stuff. But he's not tested positive. Oliver, he's in Ann Arbor, kind of live in the same world. I mean, he's he's off campus with some teammates, and there's a group of them, and they have to be smart. And um, it's just not the exact culture that college is supposed to be, but hopefully it's temporary. And um, I'm just thankful that there's games. And, you know, for, for selfishly for me, the spring is kind of when I get to come around campus the most and watch those games. So I really hope we can get through the fall and winter and, and uh, have some normalcy in the spring. Well, speaking of craziness, and you mentioned this a little bit, before we start recording the fires in California, I don't know how close they are to where you're at. I know you have a thriving wine business. What's going on with, with that? 
Well, we're in San Diego, so it's we're 500 miles from Napa, but th there's kind of fires here and there. We, we don't have any smoke issues or anything around us today or haven't for a while, but that could change. We're expecting some winds over the weekend, I think, but it's, it's devastating what's happened up north, uh, not just Napa and Sonoma, but other parts of the state and in, into Oregon and Washington. And, um, you know, there's been years where we've had fires and some scares, but this, this one is, this one is hurting. Um, it seems like more acreage, more expensive properties. Um, I know of several friends that lost everything in the last few days as far as homes and some of the wine stuff uh, structures. So it's, it's sad to watch. Um, but, uh, there's not much you can do about it. I hope the people, when they're told to evacuate, evacuate, cause it's just, it's not, it's just not a safe thing and, uh, it needs to stop. I don't know how it's gonna, every year it seems to get a little bit worse, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty tragic and it's, it's really sad to see. Rick, how, how did you get involved in the winery business? I know you, you work with the Mirror Napa Valley. What, how did you get involved with that? And what has allowed you to sort of sustain the interest in, in that? You know, it was just an interest of mine when I was playing toward the end of my years. Um, and, I, and I did some time with the Raiders and the Niners back to back. And, and with the Raiders, we had training camp right in Napa. And I was 30 something. And, you know, when we traveled, some of the guys, we, it was an older team and we had you know, wine on the plane on the way back sometimes because we were just, it, we were like sophisticated, I don't think, but we were, <laughs> we, we were a little like older. Um, so I, I had no intentions of rolling that into what, what it's become, but I, you know, I, I quickly uh, got bored, you know, I'd say at home after a couple of years of being retired from football, which was, it was nice to relax and stuff, but um, yeah, I, I, I got involved, uh, really small start. Uh, sadly, the friend of mine who started the, the thing with me lost his whole place yesterday. Um, that, that brand is called Hourglass and Jeff Smith, um, was a partner in the, in the deal when we started and he'll be fine, but it's just tough to see the pictures. But, um, you know, I just wanted to grow the brand and, and see and learn and see where it could go. Um, it's a very competitive industry. I think that's why it was attractive at the beginning. Um, it, it didn't feel like sports, but it felt competitive. And you have to kind of, you know, be resilient and, and work hard and stay on people and stuff. So um, I didn't know a lot about the business when I got involved in the beginning. And, and I've learned so much and we've expanded into some other cool things, uh, different opportunities and um you know, we were, we, we had so much momentum prior to COVID uh, and now the fires really, it, it, it kind of hurts the whole industry. Um, but we're going to do our best to rebound and, and fight back and uh, try to keep making progress. Before I ask my next question, I want to ask you, where can people find out more about the winery and maybe order wines online? Well, the website's mirrorwine.com, and it's not Meyer, it's Mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R, mirrorwine.com. And we, we, we're pretty active with Twitter um, and, and Instagram, so Mirror Napa Valley and, and Mirror Wine are the two um, tags there. And uh, pretty straightforward website. We There's phone numbers and things 
Um, we ship everywhere. Um, we do stuff in Indiana. We have wine in like citywide liquors and Martin's supermarkets and a few places kind of close to campus. Um, there'll be more, um, once restaurants get open and get going again, but, um, yeah, we, we've tried to stay active through some of this stay at home thing that started in March with a, just more social media than we used to. And it was fun. It was a good way to interact and it's pretty personal. We actually get, you know, questions and I've done several, you know, podcasts and interviews and things like that. And I try to circulate those. So people who have interest can see what we're doing and we've been able to generate a fair amount of money for our foundation and other charities that, that that supports from things back in Elkhart County and South Bend to here, you know, where we are in San Diego and stuff in Napa and everywhere in between. So um, it's more than just the wine. It's kind of, it's, it's a lifestyle thing and it's uh, it travels with me pretty well and it helps a lot of charities and kids. And uh, it's a nonstop thing um, with that. Cause there's, there's a lot of ways you get hit up for wine when you, when you have it, uh, when these auctions and stuff happen. But yeah, I'd say the website's the first, the first stop and everything's there pretty straightforward. Uh, my football follow-up to that is you being in San Diego, did you ever get a chance to see Tyler Buckner play the kid that's? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. What, yeah, I've known Tyler. And him? We've known them for when they since they moved to town. It's an interesting story. He was really young. I did a little clinic. Uh, it was an auction item for the for the community center in the town. We probably lived half a mile apart at one point, but. Um, I know his parents and, and they bought the, the little camp we did. So we did a little throw around football thing and hell, he might've been probably seven or eight years old. Um, pretty young. Um, so he's different age than my boys, but they've kind of overlapped and it's not a big town. So we, we kind of see, see the highlights and see all the stuff, but I, I've known the family and we've been in communication. The kid was an unbelievable lacrosse player. So there was a lot of those summers where we were in the same places in Maryland and, uh, New Jersey or New York, um, but I'm 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 excited about this kid's future. He's he's turned into a, a you know stud that he he's athletic. He throws it great. He, it just looks different. I've seen seven on seven stuff, and it's like you can spot him from a mile away in a pack of people because he's, the ball just comes out of his hand. It's live, um, and he's played. You know, sadly, this fall would have been good for him. He was transferring to a bigger school play a little bit different competition he's dominated at the place he's been but it, I don't think it would have mattered where he was he, he he's he's legit and I know he's chomping at the bit to get going and um he'll be exciting um hopefully we'll see him you know running around live one of these days in the next year or two and uh I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes well and following that up you know I remember vaguely but I remember you being at the end of your high school career, and there was so much anticipation about you coming in and maybe playing early. Uh, and you did play fairly early. Um, with him, there's even more anticipation that maybe he could play as a freshman. What, how do you, as a player, kind of deal with those expectations? And, and do you think that's a realistic expectation for him to be able to play as a freshman? You know, uh, I, I've thought of that because I see, um, I guess, the depth chart, and there's not a ton of guys, and he's he's physically fine. He's I, I don't see a problem there. Physically, he can do all the things you need to do. It's just picking up, you know, the the 
language of the system, which might not be very hard. I think Tommy's a great guy for, and I told him this, like, you know, Tommy Reese is a perfect guy to play for because he's been there and done that. Uh, reminds me a little bit when Skip Holtz was the coordinator uh, when I was battling, you know, through all those games that we had. And, and sometimes Coach Holtz wasn't the easiest guy to talk with, but Skip was great because you could, you could relate a little bit better to the younger version. So um, I, I don't think the goal needs to be start right away, but I, I would be shocked if he's if, – if it's like they want to put him out there and see what he can do, you know, assuming things go smoothly. And, and I think he was going to early enroll. I'm not exactly sure how yeah. that works anymore, but um, I, I, I got a lot of confidence in his ability, so I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if he's made up his mind on the early enrollment. I know there was – a. I think there was a question of, well, would it be worth him staying back to play a spring season since he isn't going to be able to play a season in the fall? I'm curious, what would be your thoughts on that, whether it would be more important for a kid to play his senior year um, to maybe advance his development or to get into Notre Dame and be here for like a spring practice to set him up for a freshman season? I, you know, I, I, I usually want to say games are better than, than not, but he's really got nothing left to prove. Um, and you don't really know what's going to happen here in the spring. So if you could go and do spring ball with the team you're going to be on for the next bunch of years, I, I mean, that's, that's quite a few practices and a lot of great experience. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. I, I don't, I never liked the whole early enroll thing relative to, and I remember the Jerkovic kid a few years ago wanted to stay and play high school basketball his senior year. I mean, I think that's what you should do, play baseball, whatever it is these guys do if they play a second sport. Um, but it just feels like half the kids now show up early because they get a little jump start and get that spring in. So I don't know the rules. I, I imagine he has the option to do uh, January or February when they start. I think they pushed it back a little bit. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be – I'd imagine he'll probably still early enroll and, and get to work with, you know, the future team and get some reps with the big guys. Last question from me, Rick. Um, as I look at these – Offenses in the 2019s and 2020 era, the spread offenses. And I think about your skill set. I think, wow, Rick Meyer would have really been good in these. Not that you weren't good in those, but your numbers would have been incredible. I'm wondering how much you would have enjoyed playing in these kind of offenses. It, oh, gosh. I just, it's hard to watch because it's like, oh, man, that would have been so fun the RPOs and some of the just, you know, guys are wide open and, and uh, changing the play at the I mean, we didn't even audible hardly. I mean, there were so many things, you know, there's kids now that don't even ever line up under center. Like they never take a snap. Uh, it's just a different game. Um, you know, good for these guys. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. There's a lot of points uh, as an offensive player. That's a dream scenario, but you know, I, you know, my decision was, I knew I was going to run the option and stuff and, and do a little bit of that, but I felt like I could do that. I was okay with that. Um, that was a lot of wear and tear as it turns out. Um, but yeah, these, these, some of these wide open spread, you know, things you use the whole field, make them defend the whole thing. And um, yeah, it does look a lot. It looks like a lot of fun. And my, my youngest is a quarterback and I tell him all the time, like, I hope you get to do some of that because uh, it, it's something I missed out on. It just wasn't there yet. Rick, you mentioned Tommy Reese. What have you thought of uh, his play calling so far as, as he's taken over as offensive coordinator? 
I haven't. Well, I didn't see the first game. I was traveling, and then I, I saw the second, and it a little bit of an unfair fight, it felt like. So uh, <laughs> you get into a good rhythm when, when you know, when you're just a better team, and, and, uh, and maybe – it was the flawless execution of the play calling. I, I don't know, but I, I have confidence in him. I think he's uh, been there long enough and been around it, and he's a smart guy, and he's got some tools to work with. And uh, I think when you see fre- like true freshman running backs and in, in some you know positions, I think a tight end, maybe you know throwing those guys in there. Uh, there's not a lot of film on those guys, so it's nice as a play caller to have a weapon that maybe the other team doesn't know a lot about. Feels like he's He's used all the stuff he's got, and um, I don't know. I hope Ian understands uh, how fortunate he is to have somebody like that that uh, had the experience and, and understands the limitations of, you know, the guys in the room. And, um, you know, this is an unbelievable opportunity with the schedule. Uh, there's tough games, but, um, you know, they stay healthy and stop testing positive. I think they can take it, take it really deep in this thing. Well, all right, Rick, that's all we got for you. We appreciate you taking time to join us today and sharing some of your insights. Of course. Thanks, guys. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at HeHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from James Watkins at InvestSense. Why is ND football having more of a difficult time with COVID-19 than any other Power 5 team? Is the lack of athletic dorms possibly a contributor, i.e. more exposure to the general student body in close settings? You know, I've gotten a lot of emails where people either want to move everybody off campus because of this or move everybody onto campus because of it. And I don't think that Either of those are the answer or the solution. When you look at Notre Dame's coronavirus dashboard, and today there were 44 total active cases, that means 25 of those 44 were from the football team and 19 were from everybody else on campus, including employees. That's 12,000 students and then all the professors and employees that work at Notre Dame. So. I don't think that's where it's coming from. When I had a chance to talk to um, St. Joe County's deputy health officer, Mark Fox, last week, and, and Mark consults with both Notre Dame and the Notre Dame football team, what they were trying to track is the changes in behavior. And there were some major changes in behavior when the football season started. One was fans in the stands, which I think, you could rule out pretty easy. I don't think there were interactions. The players weren't leaping into the stands to high-five the students when they scored touchdowns. You had parents and families coming to visit and spend time with their sons and often traveling by plane or traveling long distances to be able to do that. The third thing was communal eating. They they were having pregame meals together and – my radio partner or former radio partner, wherever I sit with the radio right now, (laughs) um, he tweeted out um, an interview he heard with Heather Dinich and uh, Brian Kelly, Heather from ESPN, in which Brian seemed to suggest that 
the spread came from a pregame meal and that this is one of the changes that they're going to have to make. I have a pretty good source that um, got in touch with me last night and they, they are making changes. They are making policy changes. Again, I think their success probably led to the opening and the maybe false sense of security in having a, a pregame meal where everybody was close to each other and so forth. And so it's one of those things where you learn. I, I've heard a lot of people say, well, aren't they embarrassed by this? Well, I think I don't know that embarrassed is the emotion. I think they really know that the season can be special and they're trying to figure this out. So I don't think the whole living situation has anything to do with it. Yeah, embarrassing seems like a stretch to me too because it's not like Notre Dame's only school that's had, had any issues with COVID-19. So um, their their issues have just, I guess, been a little bit more delayed than, than some others. Some more teams had problems sort of right off the bat. Notre Dame was successful early and then has caught it up with some some issues lately. So, yeah, I think obviously when it comes to COVID-19, you're going to have a bunch – you're so good at, at explaining all of it that I don't know that there's much for me to add. Um, I, I think it was concerning to see that the spread wasn't necessarily limited to its initial round of, of tests and that they had 18 more test positive. So, obviously, those guys could have caught it around the same time and just not tested positive yet, but that either meant they weren't – they did indicate that some of those, I, th- I think the number was seven of those players were caught up, were actually already in uh, quarantine because they thought that they could have got it through contact tracing. Tracing, But that means there were others that weren't. So w- whether that's holes in their contact tracing or they were spreading it some other way they had yet to identify, um, that's a little bit concerning. But I think as long as they can slow that down and they don't have another 18 guys test positive in, the, in, the, in this week, then I think they're – in a better position. I think um, there obviously has been some sort of lapses in judgment, whether intentional or unintentional um, that put the, each other sort of in position to contract it from, from them, from their teammates. But uh, we will see how Notre Dame sort of continues to plan around that and, and navigate that whole situation. There's, there's with all these big and bad numbers, there's a couple things that are, I think reassuring one is, and I got this from a pretty good source, USF had zero positive tests after the Notre Dame game. They tested three times. They still postponed their game with Florida Atlantic, but they didn't have out of abundance of caution, but they ended up not having any positive tests. And they're very encouraged that they'll be ready to play Cincinnati this weekend. Um so that means there was n- not any transmission to USF during the game. And, and that has kind of been the theory is, is that um, if, if, if your viral load isn't high enough to trip a test, it's also not high enough to transmit during a game. And so there's a small anecdotal evidence that that is the case. The problem is, that viral load builds. Once you're infected, it builds to the point where you do trip the positive test. So there is, you know, unless you're testing every day and Notre Dame, it'll be interesting to see if Notre Dame commits to that. You, you, it's sometimes there's a little bit of a window where you can have these big outbreaks 
that testing every day should certainly mitigate. So I hope that's not too sciencey, but. Uh, no, I think that makes sense. I think obviously there's the, the whether or not you're at a high risk of contracting it from just tackling someone if you're not in a close, close proximity with them for an uh, extra amount of time. So I think there could even be a situation where maybe a Notre Dame player doesn't transfer it to uh, a USF player during the game, but maybe he transfers it to his teammates when they're hanging out after the game later that night right. because they're in a different situation than playing football on a football field. Um, so I think Absolutely. if you're in a restaurant sitting next to each other across the table, right. talking to each other, you could certainly do that because it's close contact indoors for more than 15 minutes. Right. Next question is from at uh, NDF underscore discord. If no more positive tests come out and no more, no more players have to quarantine as a result of contact tracing, how many players do you expect will be out for the FSU game? Well, I'll reference um, Darren Pritchett's tweets. Um, Darren, again, was able to eavesdrop on Heather Dinich's uh, interview with Brian Kelly. In his notes, he expects Saturday that 90% of the team can practice and that uh, they will probably practice Wednesday. Uh, They were able to start conditioning this week. So if you've got 90% of your team and you feel like you've got this outbreak under control, I don't know why you wouldn't play against Florida State. When I checked in with uh, Notre Dame's athletic department last night, it wasn't in the release, but uh, I was told as of now the Florida State game is still on. So I would, unless there is a, a new outbreak, I would certainly expect Notre Dame to be able to play that game. Yeah, that- that 90% number seems kind of high to me. That was a little bit uh, uh, eyebrow-raising when I heard that, but obviously that's good news if that's the case. Um, obviously, the hardest part of predicting like what numbers will be available is if there's going to be people who develop symptoms. That obviously changes the timetable of when people can come back, potentially, rather than just being out for 10 days because you tested positive. If you have some symptoms, that may make you out for longer and have to deal with those symptoms. Um, but... I don't, I don't know that other than that number that Brian Kelly provided Heather Dinich, I don't know that we necessarily have really a good guess. Obviously the fact that they're keeping the, they haven't yet to reschedule the game is a good sign. Um, But it's just as important that they don't have more additional tests this week, um, which this is what the question is assuming that they don't. Um, But I think that's just as as important of anything in terms of uh, making sure the FSU game goes on as planned. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher15. He has a two-part question for us. One, is there a magic number of players that are out due to COVID or quarantine that Notre Dame says we can't play? And if so, what is that number? Well, the ACC has some loose guidelines on that. And and I think the biggest uh, concern is position groups. If you lose an entire position group – and then trying to play players at a position group they're not familiar with or trying to convert people to offensive linemen. Right. Uh, I think that's the biggest problem. Uh, So each school has ultimately the power to determine whether they feel like they can go on. For example, Virginia Tech had delayed the start of their season, and then they just felt like they were going to push forward without 23 people on their roster and four of their coaches and including their defensive coordinator. 
and they walloped NC State. Now, there were only two starters that missed that game for Virginia Tech, but one of them was their starting quarterback, and they got down to quarterback number three in that game. I, I you know, this is maybe not answering your question, but talking about the importance of going ahead and playing the game maybe with a short squad is that Notre Dame doesn't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of making up the game at this point. Their only open weekend after this one this week is November 21st. That's at the end of their finals week. It's also a week where all 14 other ACC teams already have games scheduled that weekend. So you'd have to move other games around to accommodate Notre Dame playing Florida State that weekend. The other thing is if you just cancel the game and you go by, you know, winning percentage, that could be problematic for Notre Dame trying to get into the ACC championship game. There are two really good teams that don't play both Notre Dame and Clemson. That's Miami. They don't play Notre Dame. And North Carolina doesn't play Clemson. So if they only have one loss – and Notre Dame also has one loss to Clemson, but they don't have the same amount of wins. They could be left out. So you certainly want to play it, especially against a team that looks as overmatched as Florida State. Yeah, uh, I think I'd be curious to know, my sense would be that they're probably not going to cancel a game because they feel like they have a competitive disadvantage. Like they're they're down Ian Book, so they have to play their backup quarterbacks or um, they're without two starting offensive linemen or something like that, but they still have enough bodies that can go out there and safely play the game. I think they're going to have to bite the bullet and still go ahead and do that. Now, if they if they're in a situation where they can't safely play the game because of the low numbers or just some uncertainty with so many guys in contact tracing or something like that, then I think that's what it comes down to. I'm not sure how Notre Dame feels about that. I mean, that would be kind of a disappointing way to lessen your chances of of winning the ACC championship or making the playoff. But I think that's sort of the reality of the situation. And Notre Dame isn't alone in having to deal with that, as we mentioned with obviously Virginia Tech wasn't missing a bunch of starters, but they were down a starting quarterback too. And they, they pressed forward and were able to win despite that. Uh, the, the other question from Chris Buckley was a baseball question. Will the Cubs go deeper in the playoffs than Eric's Cardinals or Tyler's Sox? Well, they certainly have the easier path. They're playing at home and they're playing a lower-seeded team, although I don't know that that means a whole lot in the playoffs. Um, I I would like the Cardinals' chances if they had an offense. Um, (laughs) They have really good – they have three really good pitchers to throw at the Padres. The problem is at some point somebody has to score a run and and I think San Diego has the better chance to do that. So I would pick the Cubs. I don't I don't know about the Sox because they were cold at the end of the season, but man, when they're hot, I would not want to play them. Yeah. I think they're a better team than the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. I, under normal circumstances, I would have a lot more confidence. If you asked me two weeks ago, I would have had a lot more confidence. But the last two weeks have done a lot of damage to my confidence in this White Sox team. Uh, and I'm too nervous about it to be really confident. I actually don't dislike their matchup with the A's. I I actually preferred the White Sox to play a team that wasn't in the division. I didn't really want them to play the Indians, who have been beating up on them, and the Twins, who they played well towards the end of the season, but have struggled with at times, too. I kind of wanted to get a, a new team in there and, and um, see how they can fare against a new squad. But obviously, Notre, or the White Sox struggle out in Oakland normally. Um, 
so that's not great, and they haven't been playing well. But we'll see if they can find uh, find some heat. The whole series of starting with a three game series is just a very strange setup, and I don't know who I don't know who it's going to uh, be in the advantage of. You would think if you have three good starters, that's the best way to handle that. But the White Sox don't have three good starters right now. Um, and I think the A's may be a little bit better set with their with their rotation. Although I think I like the first two starters for the White Sox better, but who knows? I, so I'm I'm going to go with the Cubs. I think uh, their odds of beating the Marlins are probably better than than either the Cardinals or White Sox moving on from their first series. But if the White Sox can move on and find some momentum, I think uh, they can be dangerous after that. Next one we have is another one from NDF underscore Discord. Can we expect to see Kevin Austin against Florida State? The last time I asked Brian Kelly about him, this was about the time he was supposed to get back 100% and start practicing. The problem is the team isn't practicing. (laughs) So I think that may set him back maybe a week just because he can't get his timing with Ian Book. And he, I don't know uh, until yesterday how much conditioning they were doing. And we also don't know if he's one of the players either caught up in isolation or quarantine. But I would say the Louisville game in, on October 17th is more realistic at this point. Especially, why would you – I know that he would enjoy playing against a team from Florida since he's right. from Florida. But I, why would you want to kind of push him to get back for that game? Yeah, I, I've always leaned on the conservative side of the timetables that were given to for his return. And so I think this is kind of the – this always felt like the optimistic side. And I don't we haven't – gotten any sort of indication mostly just because we haven't been able to ask because we haven't <laughs> there's been other things that have been of concern around Notre Dame football lately but um until I hear that he's like out there full go and, and going at it I, I would be a little bit uh skeptical that he would be ready to go for the Florida State game yet so I'll, I'll lean towards no but we'll, we'll see if we get a, a more positive update the next time we get to uh, ask about Kevin Austin not that there was a negative update before but we just haven't had any sort of update of consequence since then Next one is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Florida State is bad. Half joking, but could Notre Dame field a 50-man roster and still win, depending on position groups that can play, question mark? Well, it depends which 50 players that you're rolling (laughs) out there. You know, there's there's certain, you know, I mean, Florida State almost beat Georgia Tech, and Georgia Tech's awful, but, (laughs) um, you know, you'd have to have, I think, Ian Book and, and I, you know, I'd want Kyron Williams. I'd want the offensive line and, you know, they're, you know, I'd feel better if Kyle Hamilton were out there, but uh, you know, they're the people that filled in in the USF game were certainly good, but I do think Florida state is a better team than USF. Uh, So you can't just run any 50 random players out there. Yeah. The number 50 on its, on its own is I think plenty. I mean, that's, you can go too deep on your offense and defense, and then you still can have six specialists. Um, I think that's enough players to beat. I mean, even if, even if Notre Dame was playing against a good team, if they have their best 50 players available, I would, I would like to think they'd have a still a pretty good chance. Um, so it's, it's more dependent on what, which players are those that are available rather than um, what, uh, the number overall of how many are available. Next question is from Keith at SoccerGuy8801. Now that we've seen a few weeks of college football, what team left on Notre Dame's schedule outside of Clemson will give the Irish the most problems? And he, he suggests Pittsburgh, 
and UNC as possible suggestions. And then he also says, which team in the ACC has surprised you so far, good or bad? Well, I think Pittsburgh and North Carolina are the two teams that are on their schedule that would concern me if I were the coach, if I were Brian Kelly. Um, there's a couple of teams that aren't on their schedule that I think are pretty good in Miami and maybe Virginia Tech. And I think those are the two teams that have surprised me the most in a positive way. I thought Miami would be decent. I didn't think they'd be maybe top 10 decent. I ranked them in the top 10 this week. Um, and then Virginia Tech, you know, I don't know what they have all going on, but to, to thump NC State the way they did with, you know, some two starters and some four key backups missing – and their defensive coordinator out. I, I was impressed by that. The The team that surprised me poorly is Florida State. I thought they would be a little bit more competitive under Mike Norvell. Yeah, and on the, the Virginia Tech front, I think even those guys that did play, I would imagine some of those that played have either been out for contact tracing or for positive tests at some point too. So I think their preparation has probably been affected too. So for them to be able to come out and play like they did after a strange preseason – um, certainly is a good sign for the momentum that team is trying to build. Um, I still think UNC is the biggest concern outside of Clemson. I, I, that hasn't, my mind hasn't changed on that yet. Uh, the concern about Pittsburgh, I think, is growing. Um, Pittsburgh has played pretty well, and their defense has played really well. Um, the biggest surprise to me, I think, has been Louisville. I thought Louisville would be better than they have been. Um, their defense doesn't seem to have improved very much. Um, certainly – I'm not sure that I haven't seen an update yet on Malik Cunningham's injury. He got injured towards the end of that Pittsburgh game, their quarterback. Um, so that would certainly be a concern for Louisville as well. Um, so I thought they would be better. I thought Florida State would be better than they are. I don't know that I thought Florida State would necessarily be a really good team, but I didn't think they would be as bad as they've been. Um, and Miami has been a pleasant surprise, and I, although I'm still not sure how good they are because I think the two teams that they've beat – I've been, I think I've been more disappointing than I expected. So I, I don't know which way I, I, I'm supposed to lean on either of those, on any of those teams yet. So those, those are the, but those are the teams that have surprised me the most so far. Well, Louisville confuses me because they call him Mikhail Cunningham and Malik Cunningham. So they need to pick a first name. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw, I actually saw when I, I before we did the podcast, I, I, I did a search to see if there was an injury update. And I searched in Mikhail, like barely any results were coming back. And then when I searched Malik, more results were coming in. And it, it seemed like he just recently did an interview with, I think, ESPN or some, because I think the broadcasters were talking about it, how he, he had changed his name to Mikhail. He asked for people to call him Mikhail. And then no one besides reporters were calling him Mikhail. So it felt kind of weird, I think, to him. <laughs> the only time he's called Mikhail is like on a TV broadcaster, like when reporters are asking him questions. So I think he's reverted back to Malik now, and maybe that's what he'll he'll stick with in terms of uh, what he wants people to call him moving forward. Uh, next question we have is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Next year's schedule sets up nicely for a playoff run. However, Envy will be inexperienced at quarterback and some on the offensive line. Is there a good quarterback available in the tra- – if there is a good quarterback available in the transfer portal, do you think that would be a consideration? It seems to be working out well for Miami and Mississippi State. Well, I have always been a big KJ Costello fan. And when he was available, I wondered about him coming to Notre Dame. But I also thought it would send a bad message 
to your team because Ian Book was a captain last year. He has an incredible record as a starter. And you don't bring a guy like that in to be your number two quarterback. Um, Now, next year, presumably you won't have Ian Book back, even though he could come back for a sixth year. I doubt that he'll do that. I would I would keep my eye on it just to see who's out there because there were some really good ones out there this last cycle, um, including Derek King, who went to Miami, and Costello, who was at Mississippi State. Um, but, you know, even if you don't feel like the three guys on the roster can get you to a playoff or get you – kind of in that neighborhood in 2021, I think it's important to develop one of them or develop more than one of them. So I would probably stay away from that unless there was an injury or a transfer issue when you were down to two scholarship quarterbacks. Yeah, I think it would be foolish to not at least consider it. I mean, you got you to look at the market, see if there's guys out there that would fit here um, and that you think would be good enough to come in. And I, and I think if you're going to add one, it should be someone that you think – you're going to commit to, and that's, I don't know if you want to say you're going to guarantee him the job, but you, you think you're pretty confident that he would win the job. Um, to me, that would be kind of feel like you're sort of waving the white flag on Brendan Clark's career. Like how is he going to continue to develop, develop after being at Notre Dame for a couple of years now? Um, and then having a grad transfer step in. Cause then, then at that point is then he's, is he getting set up to get passed up by Tyler Buckner or Drew Pine after this grad transfer finishes? Um, so I think that that a lot of it would depend on where to, how confident Notre Dame is in Brendan Clark, or maybe if it, maybe if they're extremely confident in Tyler Buckner or Drew Pine next year, then that would, that would certainly dissuade them from, from pursuing a grad transfer quarterback. But, um, I think it's something they have to at least keep, keep, uh, their eyes on. And I think they, it is something that they at least are pretty cognizant of uh, on an annual basis to see what the market is at pretty much any position. Cause you're always looking to, improve your team if you can. Last question we have is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Have you heard of any momentum for expanding the playoff for this year only? Do you think they should, given the amount of games and the lack of out-of-conference games? Well, I think there's a lot of momentum with the media. I don't think there's momentum with the decision makers. I asked Jack Swarbrick about that earlier in the summer, and that's before all these teams opted back in we went from 76 to 127 playing some form of football in the fall uh but he was pretty adamant at that point that it would never be considered uh this year and when you look at the logistics of it with championship weeks being december 29th and your semifinals being january 1st unless you're going to really push those games deeper the semifinals and the finals deeper into January uh I I just don't see it I I think there'd be some extra money in it and you could justify maybe getting you know the teams that are playing small seasons like the Pac-12 you could you could maybe argue that they would be deserving but I I just don't see it I think that you're going to have a good enough field with four teams and if the Pac-12 and the Big Ten can get in with, you know, an undefeated team with a lot fewer games, then so be it. Yeah, I think if we were going to expand, it probably already would have happened. Um, 
and I imagine like the committee would have already like considered um, these sort of different circumstances that, okay, if the big 10 and PAC 12 play, should we expand yada, yada, yada? Like they wouldn't necessarily be waiting on the, those games to start being played um, for them to change that. Um, I don't think it should expand this year. I think they've already, they are always have been operating under the, what I believe is a bit of a flawed system that you're judging teams that aren't necessarily playing the same kinds of schedules in the first place and not always the same numbers of the game. Now, obviously the variance this year is going to be much different than it is in a normal year. But I think if you're, if you sort of make the exception for this year, then what's the argument for keeping it the same way that you have it already? Um, so maybe if you're hoping for expansion then that, that would be maybe uh, some optimism that they would expand in the future. Um, but I, I just don't know that it makes much sense to try to change it for this, this season. Um, especially when you don't even know how, how everything's going to play out. There's, there's plans in place for all these conferences, but we don't know what it's going to look like come the end of the, the season. So uh, I, I'm generally open to the college ball uh, playoff expanding in the future. Um, but in my mind, I think that should only happen if there's sort of more conformity in the schedules and uh, they don't de-incentivize de- uh, scheduling tough non-conference games. I think that would be a shame if we, if we were to lose that, um, which I think we're kind of maybe on the border of doing that um, because it seems like if you can go through it, you're, if you're a power five program and go, can go through your schedule undefeated, I think, and play not good non-conference game, I think you're still probably going to get in the playoff unless, I mean, it would be unless every other team had a, every other conference had an undefeated team, then then that's the situation where you're in trouble. But um, I think that there's room for tweaking the playoff, but I just don't think it's going to happen this year. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. We'll be back next week with a podcast, hopefully previewing Notre Dame and Florida State. Stick with NDInsider.com for your Notre Dame football coverage needs all season long. (laughs) 